we are looking at Genesis chapter 1 today. So guess what page of the Bible that's on? Page 1. So if you don't have a Bible with you, we have plenty for you in the pews. You can take that out and turn there. And uh, if you do not have a Bible, we truly mean this. Please take one home with you. I've been watching uh, a series of documentaries or excerpts uh, from a pretty significant uh, time in history in, in the uh, life of, of Canada. Uh, not too many years ago, archaeologists in Canada discovered a gravesite that had uh, about 200 unmarked graves. And what made this so um, significant and so dark was that uh, this gravesite was right beside one of the Canadian residential schools. Now, if you don't know what those are, uh, they were started by the Canadian government back in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, the purpose was to bring the children of the indigenous people, what we would have called Indians at that time, uh, to a place where they would live away from their home, uh, where they would then be taught, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, but uh, more, um, I guess, to the point, the stated purpose of these residential schools, according to one person, was to take the Indian out of them. In other words, to take them from their families, from their culture, uh, take away their language, take away their stories, take away uh, everything that had to do with their indigenous identity. Now, that was bad enough, but when you add to that the, the stories, the many, many stories of abuse, and I mean um, any kind of abuse you might imagine that so many of these children endured, it becomes just sinister. I mean, it's a very, very uh, dark um, thing that's, that's been uncovered, as it were. Now, um, I've listened to a number of the testimonies of folks who have survived these residential schools, and uh, they're hard to watch. Um, so many of them who have survived uh, so much in these residential schools uh, now, it, it just seems as they talk as though someone has just stolen their soul out of their bodies. And uh, there is uh, one kind of exception, a man who went through the abuse and everything else you can imagine in those schools, who's uh, come out and, and become successful. He's a chief in his tribe. He's a successful attorney. But here's, here's the thing that uh, is so appalling about some of his experience in the residential school that, that he was in. Uh, not only did they take his name away from him, they didn't give to him a name at all. They referred to him as a number. He was number 65 the entire time, the many years he was in this residential school. He was 65. And to watch him talk about the things and the way they treated him. And so things like this, uh, you, uh, number 65, you idiot, pick up that pencil off the, uh, off the ground. I mean, that's the way he lived for years and years and years in uh, this residential school. Now, um, as a friend has said, when you dehumanize someone to the extent that you take away his name and treat him like a number, uh, you can do anything to them. And, you know, history has borne that out. I mean, where did the idea for these residential schools in Canada come from? It came from the United States. We did the same thing with uh, Native American children here. 
Now, I want to take us back, though, in history, all the way back to the early days of the Bible, back to the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at Genesis in a moment. But if you go to the early pages of Genesis, you will see uh, in our history uh, that the Egyptians treated the Israelites, God's people, in the same way. They reduced them uh, to slavery. Now, I've said all of that to get to this question. As you think about Genesis chapter 1, where we're going in just a moment, who was the original intended audience for the book of Genesis? Now, you know, who who was it written for? And and we might say, well, for, for all of us, of course, and it was. But who was the original audience for the book of Genesis? Well, it was the Israelites after being in terrible slavery for centuries in Egypt who have now come out of slavery. And Moses, led by the Spirit, is being able then to tell them their story. They've lost their story. So uh, Moses is basically saying, in, in Egypt, uh, you were property. You were worked to death. You, uh, you, know, you were treated like a number. They, they tried to, to rob you of your identity. And, and so I'm going to show you who you are, what you are who you were made to be. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of man, or in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Pray with me. Father, um, would you show us who we really are today? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're new with us uh, today, we're continuing in a, a sermon series uh, in which we're asking really hard questions of Christianity. Today's question is this, is it reasonable to believe that the world would be better off without Christianity? Is it reasonable to believe that the world would be better off without Christianity? Well, uh, you know what I'm going to say. The answer is, is no. Uh, the, the world is fundamentally better off with Christianity. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians haven't done uh, atrocious things at times. We have, and we need to own that. But, as we've just been reading about being made in the image of God, that is one of the most profound goods that there is. And it's profoundly good for the entire world because everyone in the entire world has been made in the image of God. And I want to I show you just how good that is for the world uh, by breaking this down into two points. First, being made in the image of God affects the way you treat yourself. And second, being made in the image of God affects the way you treat everyone else. All right, so let's talk about how being made in the image of God affects the way we treat ourselves. Now, let me just say this from the beginning. You can't understand what it means to be human. You can't understand what it means to be you without understanding that you're made in the image of God. Now, I saw something recently that may help. So uh, let's, uh, there we go. 
that's my family. And that's Wesley on the left. That's our perfect daughter next to Wesley. And uh, that's Judy and me. And that's our other son, Wade. Now, uh, we have uh, another member of our family. That's Rigby when he was a puppy. And so here's the question I want to pose to you as I put these pictures up. Let's say uh, severe hardship hits the Honeycutt family. Severe financial hardship. I mean, we're, we're in financial trouble. Which one of those is going to go first? You know, which one are we going to kick out of the household first? Well, let's just kind of, you know, intuitively you know, but let's just play this out a bit. So let me think about this in terms of uh, uh, economics. You know, um, shoot, uh, Rigby's cheap. You know, we, we, I don't have to pay for college tuition for Rigby. So um, let's think about it in terms of, uh, oh, convenience. Um, I don't think I've ever laid awake at night worrying about uh, Rigby. Uh, so, so far, he's in. And uh, so let, let's, let's think about one more thing. How about the cuteness factor? Now... Now, uh, my girl's cute, my boy's not so much, um, but Rigby might be the cutest of them all. So, you know where I'm going. I mean, you know it intuitively. Um, if severe financial hardship hits the honeycut home, sweet Rigby is the first to go. Now, why is that? Because we're different from him. My kids are different from him. Humanity is is different from the animal kingdom because we have been created in the image of God. Humanity has been created in a way uh, that is distinct from and above the rest of the created order. And the Bible makes this clear to us on the very first page. Now, don't you think that's significant? The very first page, we're told who we are. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that the Trinity huddled up and said, let's make some things, and, and they did. They, they began with, you know, things like the, the planets, the rocks, the lakes, the stars, and, and then the animals, elephants and giraffes and, and cute little things like puppies. But then in Genesis 1:26, they get together and say, let's do something different, which is what they do in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right. We need to understand, though, a bit about what it means to be made in the image of God. If I were to ask you that question, you know, what would you tell me? Well, we could spend a very long time thinking about that. And and theologians have thought about that since those words were written. But I want to tell you one thing that it means about you, that you have been created in the image of God. It means that you resemble God. There's a family resemblance. Uh, You take after him. Uh, In the Old Testament, the the Hebrew word for image, being made in the image of God, uh, means to cut out something from a larger object. And, And so in that sense, you're kind of like a chip off the old block. Now, Not physically, of course. Uh, We know that God is spirit. He has no body. And of course, there are differences. We we are not like God in every way. We're not omnipotent. You know, we're not all-powerful. We're not omnipresent. We're not in every place at the same time. We're not omniscient. We don't know all things. 
but there are ways that we are like God. So uh, let me just briefly cover a few of those ways. First of all, we have the intellectual capacity for wisdom and reflection. Now, Rigby does not lie in bed at night pondering the meaning of life. We do that because we're human, because we are resembling the divine. Now, so wisdom, reflection, beyond that though, we also have the righteous capacity for morality and ethics. You know, our pets don't. So when we lived in Huntsville, we had another lab. Her name was Sugar. And uh, I would say Sugar had zero capacity for morality and ethics, none. And uh, so um, to give you an example of that, as I uh, was trying to redo our yard and working in our backyard, I, I planted a bunch of azalea bushes around this beautiful little area. I mean, they were just gorgeous. Well, I come home the next day and Rigby has dug them up. I'm not Rigby. Sugar has dug them up. And Sugar is prancing around the backyard with an entire azalea bush in her mouth, hand, uh, head held high as though she were doing something that we should be proud of. Well, like I said, our, our pets don't have the capacity for morality and ethics. We do because we resemble God. We have been made to be like God. All right. One more way that we are like God in terms of the way we, we resemble him, and that is our capacity for mercy and for grace. You know, Rigby doesn't weep over Ukraine. Rigby is not heartbroken by racism. Rigby doesn't lament the evils in our culture that we see around us day after day. Rigby doesn't plead with God to intervene. Uh, you see, only humans do that because we have been made to resemble God. And so we're able to think God's thoughts after him. Uh, we're able to live God's character after him. We're able to extend uh, to others the mercy and the grace that he has extended to us because he has made us in his image. Because you are made in his image, you resemble God. All right, let me take this just a step further. Um, why, though, did God make us in his image? Well, verse 28, God tells us why. We are to spread out across the earth as his representatives. You are made in the image of God so that you might represent him on this earth. God has given you the extraordinary opportunity to take the presence of God with you everywhere you go. And so in your school, in your neighborhood, in your office, you can leave people more alive than you found them by extending to them, by showing to them the wisdom of God, the, the character of God, the, the mercy and the grace of God. You show them what that looks like by the way you live your life. You are a living, breathing demonstration of the beauty of God himself because God made you like that. When our kids were um, little, when they were just infants, one of the things that uh, I would do oftentimes would be to, to go in their bedrooms at night, you know, after they're asleep and, and, uh, and just watch them. I mean, there's just nothing more beautiful than um, one of your children sleeping and uh, you know, that's 
my boy, that's my girl. She's a part of me. And I would just stand there and, and marvel uh, that they're made in my likeness, so, so to speak. The, the, the reason I, I tell you that is, is this. Your life will change the day that you realize that is the way God looks at you. All right, let's keep moving. That's the first way the world is better off with Christianity. Being made in the image of God does affect the way you treat yourself. You should treat yourself with great respect. Here's the second. Being made in the image of God affects the way you treat others. Now, I've been reading a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now, interestingly, though it's about how Christianity has, a, has refashioned, especially the Western world. Interestingly, Tom Holland, the author, is not a Christian. He does not believe in God. He does not believe in the supernatural at all. He is very secular in that sense. But he understands something that many, many secular people do not understand. And, and, and let me kind of play this out for you so you'll get it. But at some point in his intellectual journey, he was a student, you know, and he just assumed that his values, the principles by which he lived, uh, came from the secular worldview of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. But then he made this startling discovery. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. <coughs> now, here's what he's saying. He's a, a bit of a historian, philosopher, so let me explain what he means. He's saying basically this, I don't believe in God, but I have come to understand that so much of the way I live is based on principles that the God I don't believe in actually introduced into the world. Now, he, again, you know, he, he's saying, you know, that he understands that his way of living out these kind of Christian values is totally inconsistent, incompatible with his secular worldview. But he's okay with that inconsistency. All right. Now, forgive me for being just a bit philosophical for a moment, but this is important. Now, most of us who have had any kind of philosophy at all, or even in high school or college, will know the name Friedrich Nietzsche who was the German philosopher, 19th century, did not believe in God. Now, he spoke oftentimes with great contempt about people like Tom Holland, who would say, you know, I don't believe in God, but I'm going to live out principles that came from God. Uh, you know, basically, Nietzsche said, look, live one way or the other, consistent with the beliefs that you hold. If you're secular, live in a secular way. If you're Christian, live in a Christian way. And, and one of the main points he made in so many of his writings was this. This is what he said. If you don't believe in God, if you say you're not a Christian, but you believe in human rights, you believe in caring for the poor, uh, you believe that every human should be treated with equal dignity, then you're still a Christian and you won't admit it. Now, he doesn't mean that they're literally followers of Jesus. What he means by that is that you've kept these Christian values even though you don't believe in the God where these Christian values came from. You're living out 
Christian supernatural values that came from God, even though you don't believe in the supernatural at all. All right, let me finish the, the philosophy lesson with this, if I may, just one more minute. Let me put it in another way. It is just totally irrational to believe in the secular understanding of the survival of the fittest in which the strong eat the weak and then go out and proclaim that we should love one another. Now, there's, a, there's a Russian philosopher who said it better, I think, than anyone else, Vladimir Solovyov. He said this, modern people believe this, man descended from apes, therefore let us love one another. I mean, you get it. It, uh, it does not make sense uh, to, to believe one thing and to live a totally different way. Now, that's enough philosophy for one Sunday morning, but let's, let's look now at how Christian truths, like being made in the image of God, have, have been so beneficial for the world. One of the most famous uh, sermons from the early centuries of the Christian church was preached by a, a man named Gregory of Nyssa, and he preached it in order to raise money to, to take care of those who had leprosy. And he said this, lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way that you and I have. So let us take care of Christ. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Here's what he meant by that. Ministering to someone made in the image of God is ministering to the one who made us in the image of God. See, we're that close. We're that much a part of him. Now, I mean, there's so much more we could say. Christianity has done so much that is so good for the world. Um, that same principle of being made in the image of God led to the beginning of what we now call hospitals. It led to the beginning of laws that outlaw, uh, outlawed child abuse and infanticide. It led to the start of the Red Cross. It led to the, to the practice of loving your enemies and so on and so on and so on. Have Christians done terrible things in the name of Christ? Yes, we have. And again, as I said earlier, we need to name those things. But here's what we have to realize. The standards by which we stand condemned when we do terrible things in the name of Christ are themselves Christian. Chris Gabbard has written a, a book entitled A Life Beyond Reason. And in it, he, he shares how he completely embraced this secular mindset, this secular worldview. And that included for him... The idea is that uh, abortion might be a really good idea, that even infanticide, you know, the killing of a child in this instance is what he was thinking of, that maybe is born with terrible defects, is, can actually be a good decision. So he, he bought into that worldview wholeheartedly, but then he had a baby. And... Uh, there was a lot of trouble in the delivery and there was a lot of damage done to his little son. He was born blind, his son was born quadriplegic, his son was born with cerebral palsy. But then uh, Chris went and visited his baby in the neonatal intensive care unit and this is what he said. After his birth, I was deeply ambivalent having been persuaded that a child like this wasn't worthy of life. But there was my son, asleep on a ventilator, motionless 
under a heat lamp, tubes and wires everywhere, monitors alongside the transparent plastic crib. And then he went on to say this, what most stirred me was the way he resembled me. Nothing had prepared me for the shock of recognition for he was the boy in my own baby pictures, the image of me when I was an infant. Well, later as his son August grew up and he was with his son, oftentimes strangers would come up and would kind of look at his son warily. But Chris Gabbard never ever got tired of saying to them, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This father loves his child because he's made in his image. You and I have inherent value and dignity because we are made in the image of God and and so does every single person on the face of the earth. We have dignity that comes from God himself. As I close now, I just want to think about Jesus for a moment. You know, he entered our world with uh, no dignity when you really look at it. You know, he was looked down upon because he was born of parents who were not married. His cradle was a feeding trough. He was wrapped in rags. He was born in a cave. And, uh, but then when you moved to his death, he would die with even less dignity. He was convicted. He was beaten. He was bleeding, abandoned, naked, ashamed. And the Roman soldiers struck him so many times in the head with a staff that Isaiah prophesied of that time regarding Jesus with these words. His appearance was so disfigured that he was hardly recognizable as a man. Jesus not only laid down his life for you, he laid down his dignity for you. The next time you look in the mirror and don't particularly like what you see, remember uh, you are looking at the image of God. And the next time you see someone who's really struggling to make a go of it in this world, remember again, you are looking at the image of God. Pray with me. Father, would you grant us the ability to to know and understand and to embrace the dignity that is ours because we have been made in your image. And as we look around the world and around our neighborhood, around our places of of education or or work, and, and we might be tempted to look down on someone, help us to remember we are looking at the image of God. And there is great dignity because of that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.